And we have a couple of opportunities coming up. One of them, you may have noticed there's a pink Christmas tree in the back, and that is the Buggy Bunch pink tree. And so um, it is uh, the Buggy Bunch. I, I just spoke to Kim about this. This is, um, it goes to help support women and uh, families, uh, primarily single moms. And those, uh, they, they have Bible studies. They do all kinds of ministry there with these uh, women and their children. They, they bring in, they have child care and everything. And so, but they need supplies and um, your donations. Kim will explain to you back there how you can take part in that and donate to this wonderful cause. She's right back there by the pink Christmas tree. So that's a, one of the opportunities for us. And we'll talk about the other one in a few minutes. Uh, VBF students, they had a great day at the beach this past Wednesday. Check out the newsletter, the e-newsletter, for lots of the fun photos. And since we're still in the heart of summer, they have another fun activity that they're trying to squeeze in before school starts in August. So that will be July 27th, Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. It's going to be a bowling night. Um, you need to, your kids need to bring $10 to help cover the cost of the expenses and also if they want to play video games or something to bring in extra few dollars or something. Um, here's our other opportunity, folks. We have a precious lady in the Dominican Republic who is helping the poor and underserviced residents there um, at their eye clinic. And uh, she's opening up a free eye clinic for them. And they need prescription glasses. So um, if you have those old glasses laying around somewhere in your house that you know you don't use anymore and you feel bad throwing them out, this is a great opportunity for you to be able to help uh, be a part of this ministry. Just bring them to church. There's going to be a Rubbermaid container back there in the back on the info table. And you can just drop them in there. And that'll be a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to give. So many of us, um, so many of you have been asking uh, about a service for our precious uh, Bill McClellan. And um, this coming Saturday is going to be the service, uh, the celebration of life for Bill McClellan at the, right here at Storm Grove in the Chapelteria. Um, we will be gathering here about 1.30. And we're just going to have a wonderful time uh, to celebrate Bill's homegoing and just how he touched and encouraged and all the wonderful ways that he shared the love of God with all of those around him. Um, we'll be singing and sharing and uh, it's just going to be a wonderful time. And also um, we lost our precious uh, sister Kay Staples in the last couple weeks. So her celebration of life is going to be held on August 2nd at 1 p.m. Uh, in the main sanctuary at the uh, Vero Bible uh, Church of Christ. And then also our sweet George Libinati, we lost him also, and so we are uh, still getting a date together for his celebration of life, uh, maybe sometime later in August. As soon as we have those details, we'll let you know. If you want to get all the information about B, uh, VBF, please check out your um, weekly newsletter. If you're not getting one, you can sign up at the table. Um, check your bulletin handout or the um, Facebook and Instagram. 
or visit our website at fairobiblefellowship.org. Also, um, we don't pass a plate here, but if you would like to give to the ministry, we've got a box over here on the side. You can mail in your gift or you can go online. And also for those of you, I forgot to say this, but for those of you who are streaming with us this morning, we're so thankful that you're with us also. Don't forget to hit that like and share button. And I'll turn it over to Jennifer now. Good morning, church. Great to be here with you all today. Will you stand as we prepare our hearts to worship? And I will read out of 1 Chronicles 16, which is our call to worship this morning, which says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among, among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods.
Father God, then in a nobler, sweeter song, we'll sing thy power to save. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be here to worship you, God. May our hearts and our focus and our minds be on you, only on you, God. We put you above all else in our lives. And I just pray that you Reach those hearts that may not know you yet, God, that you will minister to them, show them your love, your power, the freedom in you, God. We love you, and we praise you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. All right, it's time for the children to come forward. We're so glad that you stay and worship our Lord with us. You guys sound so beautiful. So if you can come forward and um, we'll take you next door. 
once your leaders are here. I have a couple exciting announcements. Brianna and Stephen Calabrese welcomed their new little baby this past Wednesday, July 13th. Ruth Ann Elizabeth, mom and baby are doing great. And we just got some very exciting news that Ka uh, Katie and Dylan Surrett just had their little baby yesterday at 9.57 in the morning. His name is Grant David Surrett. We don't have a picture yet, but we'll be showing that next week. We just found out. So congratulations. Good morning. Today's reading is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 24. It's a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ray. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. I'd, I'd ask for that particular passage to be read this morning. It's not the, the portion of Scripture we're teaching from this morning, but it is something that uh, I wanted to emphasize because what we're going to focus on this morning is that intimacy with God, the God's intimacy with us, the fact that God knows us, is with us, has His hand upon us. I love that portion of the Scripture that talks about how He goes, is before us and behind us, and beside us with his hand, hand upon us, hemming us in. It always makes me think of uh, secret service with a president. Before him, behind him, hands on him, hemming him in. Nobody can get to him, but uh, the secret service has their faults. God does not. And that intimate love that God has for us is something that we need to understand more of. It's great to be with you this morning. In the last uh, couple of weeks, Jessica and I have been in Italy and Switzerland and uh, in the U.S. We were in uh, New York, Orlando, uh, Atlanta, Raleigh last Sunday, the big city of uh, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, and uh, Jacksonville, and there's no place. I can tell you this after uh, exhaustive studies, there's no place like home. It's great to be uh, to be here with you this morning, to be back in our church with our church family. And uh, we also are very, very aware this morning, it's our first time here without uh, George back there handing us a cushion and Bill giving us a hug, and uh, I've needed to be back here to grieve a little bit as well. And God is with us. And this morning we're going to continue in the book of Acts. Several months ago I taught from Acts chapter 12 the story of James beheading and Peter's uh, arrest and then miraculous release from prison. And I remember on that day I drew these three points from that message. One, that if James had not been killed, then those who were being prepared to go out as missionaries and these missionary journeys that Greg has been teaching us about, if, if James wouldn't have been killed, then th they might not have understood the danger and the, the reality of the opposition that they faced. If Peter had not been miraculously released, they might not have had the hope that they had of God being with them and God's ability to miraculously save and intervene. And if the church, the believers, hadn't been gathered in that house that day to pray for Peter's release and then see him be released, then maybe we or they in that time, we today, wouldn't understand the true power of prayer and how somehow, in ways that we can't even fully comprehend, our prayers move the heart of God. And it's those three things understanding the danger, having that hope and courage, and then understanding the role of prayer and the opportunity that God gives us to, to uh, have a part in the outcome through prayer. Those three things drive those missionaries forward, and they drive us forward today. And we've been hearing in the last few weeks about all of the things that Paul went through. Last Sunday, and I think this has been something that Greg has been, been hitting on repeatedly, 
Greg talked about the need to be spiritually bold, to be scripture-focused, and to be salvation-driven. And he also made it clear that if we are spiritually bold, if we are scripture-focused, and if we are salvation-driven, we can expect some opposition. We've been hearing a lot about opposition in the life of Paul and his companions on these missionary journeys. So that's where we pick it up today, looking at chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Last week, Greg left off at uh, verse 15, so we're going to pick up at verse 16. Paul learned this lesson in a lot of different ways in a lot of different cities, but he never quite tangled yet with the people like the ones in, in Athens, the Greeks. They're a very unique uh, group of people. Uh, let's start out by reading a, a couple of uh, verses, and we'll get back to talking a little bit about the Greeks. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Sounds a lot like what we've been learning that we should be doing, reasoning in the marketplace with people who are there in the synagogue and the church discussing the things of God there, and that's what Paul was doing in, in, Greek, in Greece, in Athens. The Greeks were a different kind of people. The Greeks were honored for their philosophies, for their religion, for their art. In fact, if you went to college, if you went to high school, possibly elementary school, you learned a lot about the Greeks, right? Even today, you don't have an education until you have studied the Greeks, their culture, their philosophy. Those great philosophers like Socrates and Plato. I wrote a, a paper on Plato in college in a philosophy class, and, and in my paper I pointed out that he, uh, he had a different name. I think it was Bob. And then uh, they started calling him Plato because he loved that modeling clay that he played with so much. And uh, I didn't get an A on that paper, by the way. And yet I'm here today. So uh, it all worked out. They were known for their, uh, their philosophies, their religion, their art. They'd been conquered by Rome 150 years before Paul was there. And so they had the Roman Empire occupying Athens and the Greek nation, which was uh, difficult for them. But even still, they were seen as a hub for culture, art, religion, philosophy, all of these things. They had some weird religious beliefs, though. And uh, this is something that still our, our students study today in high school and college, the, uh, the religious beliefs of the Greeks. They were polytheistic. That just means that they believed in an uh, unlimited number of gods. We believe, according to the Word of God, in the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. They would, uh, they would say probably that's fine and believe in our God along with all of their gods. But their gods were weird. They had some, uh, some crazy stuff going on. For 800 years, at, uh, at the point that Paul was there, for 800 years they'd been worshiping Zeus and all his buddies, and, uh, and they, they had some strange things, some strange origin stories. They believed in their tradition that, that the world was created, it was just darkness, and there was nothing except one bird, and this bird was just flying around in the darkness, when somehow the darkness mated with the bird. I never really got how that happened. And the bird laid an egg and sat on the egg for thousands of years, and the egg hatched, and some other gods came out of the egg, and that was kind of the start of how, how their gods uh, developed. And then they believed in some, some sort of creation stories as well. But uh, it was all, all real strange. Their gods were known, and this will probably take you back to some of those high school or college classes, their gods were known for abducting, torturing, seducing, killing humans. They didn't have a good relationship with people. Uh, Zeus became a swan one time because he fell in love with a swan, and then he mated with a swan, and the swan laid eggs, and the eggs hatched, and they were more gods. 
And uh, so they had all this crazy stuff. I mean, to me, it's crazy. It might not be to you. Uh, some of you are far smarter than me and probably got A's in those classes where I struggled a little bit. But uh, that's just kind of how they were. Their gods were fickle. They were angry. They were abusive. Their, their gods had contempt for human beings. They were always trying to trick humans and abuse them. If, if they saw someone who was attractive, they would seduce them. And then they would later just kill them or destroy them. They, uh, they were not friends. Humans and gods had little interaction. The, the humans lived on earth. The gods had their city up somewhere. The gods could look down and see the humans, but the humans had no interaction with God, with the gods, a whole series of gods, and it was a strange thing. But it's important for us as we look at this scripture today to understand this is the context that Paul had walked into. When he went to Athens, he was talking to people who were like this. And, and there were people who were, uh, they were not, as I said, not against a new God. In fact, sort of the opposite. Because of the way they, their belief system was constructed, they had sort of a fear, a concern that there were other gods out there that they didn't know yet who were important gods and they didn't want to make those gods angry with them by not acknowledging and worshiping those gods they didn't even know of. So now you can see where we're going with this a little bit today. But Paul, as it says at the start of this scripture in verse 16, was bothered, said his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that this city was full of idols. And it was full of idols because they worshiped all of these uh, unlimited number of gods. So he reasoned in the synagogue and he reasoned in the marketplace. He went around doing what he was there to do, just having conversations with people about the one true God and his son Jesus Christ who had died and been buried and resurrected. Paul saw that these brilliant, intelligent, devoted, they were devoted to this weird religious system they had, but they were absolutely devoted to worshiping all of these gods. So these people were intelligent, they were artistic, they were great philosophers, great architects, great artists, great music, so much to admire. But what Paul saw with these brilliant people were, were pagans who were lost, and they needed to know the gospel. And Paul was there to teach them the gospel. Now, Greg has been consistently teaching us as we've gone through the book of Acts about the importance of having the gospel kind of just breathe out of us as we go about our lives, right? That we should be sharing the gospel. And he, I don't remember him ever saying we should go out and stand on the corner with a megaphone and just start preaching to people. Although I've seen it done and I've seen it be effective, but that's not the point. The point is to just find ways to share the gospel as you go about your life. And that's what we in Vero Bible Fellowship have been taught in recent days as we've gone through the book of Acts, been taught that we should do. So there are basically two ways of going about sharing the gospel with people. One is by attacking what's wrong. There's plenty that's wrong out there. Have you noticed? It's kind of subtle, but if you look close, you can see some things out in our culture and our world that are not, set, not that great, that aren't consistent with what God desires. And so we can take that method of going and addressing those things that we know are wrong and attacking them, maybe not even attacking the people, but attacking the sin. That's one way. The other way is to go out and teach the gospel, to teach about Jesus. I remember when I was a young, young guy in church hearing this missionary. I don't remember where, somewhere far away, this missionary was teaching in difficult places. And the missionary's message was what they do is they just go out and teach about Jesus. 
Just teach about Jesus. And I remember this missionary saying this over and over again. Just teach about Jesus. Just teach the gospel. And that's what Paul did. In fact, if you look, uh, think about it for a minute, in the New Testament, it's very rare to come across anyone who is teaching the gospel by attacking what's wrong. You just don't, don't see that. Now, if, if they're dealing with people within the church or within the religious community, then maybe. But as far as just going somewhere and teaching the gospel, you didn't see that method used in the New Testament. Instead, you saw them teaching the gospel, preaching about Jesus, about Christ and Christ crucified, the death, burial, and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, redemption, atonement, the good news. The word gospel literally means good news, and that's what they were teaching. So Paul uh, decided that that would be his approach. How do you do that, though? How, how, do you, how do you preach the gospel in your everyday life? There's a guy who I've had the privilege of getting to know over the last 10 years or so. His name is Jerry Root. He just retired recently from uh, uh, the position of a, a Bible teacher or maybe head of theology, I'm not sure, from Wheaton University in Illinois. He's a great guy. Jerry is one of those people that loves everybody and everybody loves him. But now he teaches this class in his retirement on evangelism. And he has this method that's just so interesting. Jer Jerry's method is, uh, first of all, his, his foundational uh, basis is that he believes that God is tugging at people's hearts. That God's just tugging at people. They might not know it, but God is tugging at people's hearts, just kind of gently pulling people towards him. And so Jerry's method, if you can figure out where God is tugging at this person's heart, then that would give you an opening to talk about that thing, that point that's of great interest to them, and use that as sort of a bridge to sharing the gospel with them. So the way he does that basically is this. He talks about having, asking people public questions. If you meet somebody for the first time, you can't just start asking them a bunch of personal information. That won't go very well. But there are public questions you can ask. If you're visiting in, some, in Italy like we were, and you meet someone there, you can ask them. If you've been here before, you live here, are you from here? Those kind of public questions that are not offensive and people aren't guarded about. And then they answer that, and invariably they start giving you other information about themselves. And the, when someone gives you a little other, other little nugget of information about themselves, then they're giving you permission to talk about that also. And this is just kind of Jerry's method to develop a conversation and always listening for a clue about where God is tugging at that heart. And then that gives Jerry and his method the opportunity to start teaching the gospel in a very gentle, natural way. That makes sense, doesn't it? I love that. How do you go about just teaching the gospel? Paul, the Apostle Paul, did, uh, did that also. I don't know if he took Jerry Root's evangelism class or if he uh, kind of knew this in some other way. But Paul's spirit was provoked because he found himself in this city full of idol worshipers. And that bothered him. But instead of going out and preaching about the uh, terrible sin of worshiping false gods and idols, he decided to have a different method. He noticed, in fact, let's go back and read. Uh, we'll start at 16 again, just get a little run at it and read a couple of verses. Follow along with me, starting at 16. <clears throat> now, Paul, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This tells us a little bit about their culture. They loved to sit around and talk about something that was new. New philosophies, new religions, new gods, new ideas. So instead of attacking them about idol worship, Paul used the Jerry Root method. He noticed that these were people who had a lot of interest in new gods and new religion. And they had invited him to come to their place, the Oropagus, to teach them about what he believed. Let's look at verses 22 and 23, just going forward. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul noticed something about them, information he had gathered about them, the public question, and used that now to launch into his sermon about the gospel, starting at ground that they were familiar with and they all agreed on, then moving them into something that was new. This idol, or this, uh, sorry, altar for the unknown God was interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. Think of, instead of unknown, think of maybe uh, like the wild card God or the just-in-case God. These were intelligent people. They knew there are other, other gods out there that they hadn't heard of because they believed in all of these gods. And so this was an idol, or sorry, an altar, where they could go and worship these other gods. You know, I know there's probably another god out there. Maybe I don't know him, but he sees me. And so I'm going to worship at this altar. So other god, whoever you are, take notice. I'm worshiping you. Don't get mad at me. Don't destroy me. Don't ruin my crops and my family and all of that. The just-in-case god. And so Paul is saying, I see this here. I see the kind of people you are. I see this, this place to worship the unknown God. I have news for you today. I know that God, and I can tell you a little bit about that God. So you can imagine that their ears are perked up. They're very, very interested in what this stranger, this outsider, this foreigner has to say about this unknown God. And then the, in the following verses, he starts to tell them a little bit about it, about this God. First of, he, first of all, he says, this is the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, these Greek scholars and religious leaders had to be comparing what Paul said to what they knew, or their, their system of gods. So this is something that's sort of similar, but sort of new, because they believed that there was a creation story that Prometheus and Zeus had a part in creating things and creating people. And so they're saying, okay, this God made the world and everything in it, and so they had to be kind of interested and kind of like, okay, I... I think that could be, he might be talking actually about Zeus or Prometheus or, or maybe someone else. Let's keep listening. He goes on and he says, this God does not live in temples made by men. Still not that much different from what they believe because they believe their gods lived in some other realm where they were all communicating with one another and lived in their palaces and kind of looked down on the earth. So this God does not live in temples made by men. Sort of familiar to the Greeks but maybe a little bit different. Then he starts to go off on things that were totally new territory for them. 
He said, this is a God who's not served by human hands. In fact, he is the source of everything. He doesn't need to be served by human hands because he's the source of all that we have, life and breath and everything, life and breath and everything. That's a pretty comprehensive list, right? Starting with the things that give us the ability to be alive, life and breath, and then, by the way, everything else also, this God is the source of all of those things. He goes on, and the, these guys are starting to notice some, some new things now that are different from their gods. He says, he is actually involved with us and determines the time and the place of our habitation. Now, this is strange in the Greek mythology or the Greek gods that there would be a God who actually cares enough about us and is interested enough in us, in fact, has enough control over us that he determined the time that we would live, and the place that we would live. There's nothing in Greek mythology, and their system of gods is like this. So this is new to them. This is news to their ears. And then he goes on to say that he does this so that we would want to seek him, but he's actually very near. In fact, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And at this point, these Greek scholars had to be just blown away. Because Paul is speaking with authority as one who is speaking the actual truth of the Word of God about the one true God. And I'm sure that they could sense that authority and the truth, that the fact that this isn't some guy who's just making up wild stuff as he goes. This rings true, but it's totally different. And the biggest difference between the gods that they believed in and the God that Paul was teaching about is that this God is involved in the lives of people. This is a God who has intimate care for the people that he has created and the people who are worshiping him, as opposed to their gods who are angry and vindictive and tricky and fickle and mean. This is a different God. This God has the big three. It's omnipotent, unlimited power, omniscient, unlimited knowledge, and omnipresent is everywhere. But on top of that, this God is intimate loving and kind. This is news to these Greeks that Paul is talking about. Isn't this a beautiful message that Paul put together? When you think of the, where their minds and their training, their religious history is at, who he's talking to, why he's talking to them, to teach them the gospel because he knew that they were pagans who were searching and searching and searching for something that would have truth and they weren't finding it. Instead, they were worshiping all these idols that they made up, made by human hands that had no real power, all kinds of crazy stories and things that they made up. And you know what? They knew that they made it up. I mean, they didn't make it up, but they knew that some guy 800 years ago made all this nonsense up, and now they're doing all of this year after year, and for the first time, they're hearing the truth of the actual God. It's a game changer for them, this God who loves this God who's involved, this God who cares about the details of our lives, this God who hems us in before and behind and keeps his hand upon us. This was new to them. You know what? It's a game changer for us too. I say that because I'm absolutely convinced that not any of us truly comprehend the deep, unending, nurturing, compassionate love of God. It's the miracle that balances God's righteousness and holiness, his absolute love for his people. It's his righteousness and holiness that make God 
unable to tolerate sin and demands that sin has to be accounted for, according to the Scriptures, by death. But it's His love that provided the Savior for God to pour that punishment out on, to be brutally killed, to be buried, and then to come back to life, proclaiming victory over sin and death. This is the gospel. Love is the key to the gospel. It's the heart of it all. And yet, most of us undersell the love of God. John 3, 16, you know that verse, right? The first verse anybody ever learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. I only know it in the King James Version. Yeah, I don't even know what it's like in the other versions. For God so, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah, and his love is what prompted, what provoked that whole thing, that whole process that verse talks about. God loved the world so much that he did this. And we get that as love pertains to salvation. But we forget it when we think about God's love as, and how it pertains to our daily lives. I like to step aside here for a minute and think about God's love. Now, this is not what Paul was preaching. I, don't, I mean, he may have, but there's no record of that in Scripture. I don't think Paul went into all this that I'm about to say. So what I'm about to say is not from this Scripture, but it's true according to Scripture. And I believe it's just as life-changing for us to grasp this as it was for them that day. I'd like to look at a couple of examples of how God's love was shown in the ministry of Jesus Christ. These are things you're familiar with, stories that you're familiar with, so just let them, uh, let them come to mind. Matthew 23 when Jesus was leaving the city of Jerusalem and he with his disciples looked down over the city and he had this lament and he started weeping over the city of Jerusalem. This shows God's love for the people who've rejected him. Jesus is saying, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He had this, with, with tears and weeping, this grief because of his love for the city of John, the city, but the people of Jerusalem and how they had rejected him. And, and knowing that now the consequences of that rejection were going to be destruction coming upon the city and torment over those people for generations and generations, and it continues to extend today. God's love for even the people who rejected him was apparent in that passage. Another passage in John 11, I think uh, Pastor Greg taught about this uh, some weeks back. The story of, of Lazarus and his death. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were dear, dear friends of Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus received news that Lazarus was sick, and Mary and Martha were asking Jesus to come back and heal Lazarus, and then he didn't in time. And so he got the word that Lazarus had died. Finally, they go back. And when Jesus arrived on that scene after Lazarus had been dead for four days, you just see the grief from the time I was a little kid. I remember the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It's part of this story. Jesus had such love for Lazarus, such love for Mary and Martha, that he grieved himself at the loss of his friend and also grieved at the grief that his friends Mary and Martha were going through right there in his presence, their, their tears, their suffering. 
God understands that grief. And even then, Jesus knew what he was about to do. You would think maybe he wouldn't be that sad. He'd be like, this is really going to be awesome. Hang on, gals. You don't know what's about to happen. But no, he, he felt their emotion. He wasn't focused on the miracle that he was going to do. He was focused on the, um, the, the emotion of his friends because God's love is filled with that kind of compassion. I knew I would have a little pause here. <clears throat> because of his love for us, God feels our grief. He identifies with it. He carries it. He cares about it. He goes through it with us. Phyllis, This compassionate, loving God feels your grief. Has, gives this desire to carry you and sustain you. And our prayer for you is that you would experience that and feel it. I don't think Jackie's here with us today. Man, I hate losing friends. Because God made us that way. He gave us the capacity to love. It's just this little tiny example of this great overwhelming love that he has for his people. And we need to just bathe in it, dive into it, understand it. You know what happens? We kind of push the love of God away so many times because we know we don't deserve it. We're such a success-driven culture that we get things that we deserve. We work hard for things. We can be proud of what we have because it represents our hard work and our achievement, our successes. But when it comes to the love of God, it's so great and overwhelming. We know that we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And we're aware of our shortcomings and our failures, and it makes us uncomfortable. Like I sort of have to step back from that love of God because I can't receive it. I can't in good conscience jump into it and embrace it because I know I don't deserve it. So I've got to be a little bit reserved. I'll take a little bit. You know, I'm not a bad guy. A little bit of love from God's good. But God is pouring his love out on us in ways that we can't even comprehend and we run away from because we're ashamed of our failures. But friends... Dive into the unsearchable depths of the Father's love for you. Figure out ways to do it. I've been meditating on this, pondering it, thinking about it, praying it. God, how, how can I do this more? I mean, I believe in this so strongly that if we could only truly comprehend the love of God and let it affect us and wash over us the way he intends, our lives would be so much different. I don't mean they'd be better or we'd have nicer houses or nicer cars. Or, I don't, there would be things that happen in our lives. I pretty sure we'd be nicer people if we really understood the love of God and let it flow over us and affect us that way. Well, let's get back to 
Paul's sermon because none of that was part of what he said that day, but I think it's what he hinted at about the intimacy that God has with his creation is what got the attention of the Greek people he was speaking to that day. But let's finish this up the way that Paul finished it. Let's skip ahead to verses 30 and 31. After he had taught about all of this, Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There was a time when God tolerated ignorance, but that time for sure ended here. These were people who didn't know the truth of the gospel. But when Paul finished talking to them that day, they did. And there was only one correct thing for them to do. God commands that all people everywhere repent. And then let's see what happened. When they heard the story, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some mocked and left. Others were like, wow, this was really a stimulating conversation. I'd like to get together every Thursday and have more conversations just like this one. But Paul wasn't there for that. He was there to teach the gospel and call them to repentance. You know, there are people like that. There are people like that maybe right here in this room today who are fascinated by the conversation, intellectually stimulated by exploring all the truths, but never internalize them and never come to the point of repentance. And until we come to the point of repentance, of giving up and saying, God, I'm a sinner and I need salvation that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me. And we come to God that way with that repentance and our lives are changed from destruction into eternal life. But if we want to just keep talking about it, keep having the intellectual dialogue that makes us feel smart and good and spiritual, we're just as lost as if we didn't care at all. And there were these guys there who just wanted to keep talking about this and Paul left. Okay, it ends with this. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and this other person, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And that's what happened. And that's the end of that story. So a couple of points of application today as we close. One, if you're a follower of Christ who has repented of your sin and come to God, trusting in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the payment for your sin. If that's you, if you've done that, you're a child of God, a follower of Christ, I assure you, you've not yet fully comprehended the love of God and you should make that part of the mission of your life to comprehend more the depth and the height and the breadth of the love that God has for you. Believe it. On your worst day, he loves you as much as he does on your best day because it's not determined by your performance. It's not determined by how well you conduct yourself. 
It's the love of God that should make us desire to, to follow his word and to live according to his standards. But it doesn't make him love us more when we do, and it doesn't make him love us less when we fail. Whether it's a bad attitude or a bad decision or whatever else it is, believe in the love of God as a child of God who's come to him for salvation, has received that, and gone from death into life. God has this love for you that you need to depend on cling to, dive into, understand, let it bathe over you and draw you closer and closer to Him. If you've not yet come to Christ for salvation, repenting of sin and asking for forgiveness, then God freely offers that to you today. And you have the same three choices that those people in Athens had that day. Mock and leave. Hang around indefinitely for ongoing, stimulating conversation that does not save. Or repent and follow. And those are the three choices that you have today. And just what Paul did, you know, at the end of this, he didn't say, well, let's sing now 16 verses of Just As I Am to give you lots of time to walk down the aisle and, and shed your tears and come to Christ. He didn't do that. He, it, I mean, it's a very brief passage. You know, a lot more happened than what is written here. But I sort of picture it like this. Paul got done, turned around and walked away. And some mocked him. Some invite him to come back and let's talk some more. And some followed him and believed. And this is it today. We have the opportunity now to dive into the love of God as followers of Christ, to repent and believe as those who would need to come to him. And you have that opportunity today. As we close the service, we have people who will come and be standing at the front and off to the side to pray with you. We're not going to sing a lot of choruses of Just As I Am this morning. What we're going to do is close the service. And I challenge you, if you're a follower of Christ, plead with God to teach you more about his love and how to experience it fully. If you're not, then this morning, make your decision. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word and what it teaches us about your great and glorious love, about the fact that you were the creator of heaven and earth, that you don't dwell in temples made by man. You dwell in heaven that's so glorious that we can't even understand the descriptions of it. Father, you don't need to be served by us. You are the one who gives us everything that we have, our life and our breath and everything. And Father, it's in you that we live and move and have our being. Thank you that you care enough about us to capture our tears in a bottle, to grieve with us, to understand the pains and the difficulties and the triumphs and celebrations that we go through in our life. And you care about those things because of your great intimate love for us. And Father, thank you for the Savior and the way that your love was ultimately displayed by the death and burial of your own Son and the power of the resurrection and new life, and forgiveness of sins, and justification, and the fact that we today can be absolutely confident and secure that Almighty God has this passionate love for me. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You're dismissed. <laughs>